The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, church. If you grab your Bibles and op- open up to the third chapter of Genesis, that's where we'll take our text from today. Have you ever been betrayed? You know, betrayal in general is tough. But it's even more difficult when the betrayal comes from someone close, someone intimate, a close friend, a a parent, a child, a spouse. And perhaps you've personally experienced a betrayal that that left you reeling. Maybe a a father or a mother who wasn't there when they should have been. Or perhaps it was a a spouse that was unfaithful. Or, or, Or a deep friendship. Someone that you really, really trusted that that turned around and stabbed you in the back at the most inopportune time. Maybe it's a child that has rejected your love and has maligned your character to others. Or or perhaps maybe you haven't personally experienced it, but you've seen the effects of it in people close to you. The emotional wounds and the damage that is done, the, the things that are created as a result of being deeply, deeply betrayed. Perhaps you've been close with someone and seen firsthand the depth to which a betrayal like that has wounded them. How it, how it strikes right at the core of their being. And even now as I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning these possibilities, I want you to fix your mind on a scenario that you know of, of personal betrayal. I want you to fix your mind there for just a moment and and then just let it rest there for a second. How did it hurt you? What did it do? How deep is the hurt? How slow are you to trust again? How long is the healing process? Is it months? Is it years? Or sometimes even decades? As we take a look at, as we examine the events recorded for us here in Genesis 3, we're going to see and hopefully feel the weight of mankind's betrayal against God. Today, specifically, we'll examine the entrance of Satan, who makes war against his creator and poisons the world. And over the next few weeks, it's our hope that we will all grow in our understanding, not only of the magnitude of our sin, but also the magnitude of God's grace and of his love for us. What did he have to do to overcome our betrayal against him? 
And it's my hope that through our time in the scriptures today that we'll come to a deep, deep understanding of just what it has cost God and why it is that sin is a big deal and just how wicked and evil the enemy of God, Satan, really is. So chapter 3 of Genesis emerges to us out of a context. There is both a historical context and an exegetical context that are important for us to consider this morning. Both of these lenses will help provide greater clarity as we consider the sudden shift in our story and, and the tone of this passage, how it should strike us, how it should hit us in our hearts. You see, Moses has been leading the people of Israel on a journey out of slavery. They were in Egypt, and now they're on their way to the promised land, and he's, he's done this as a representative of Yahweh. And Yahweh, you'll remember, is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the same Yahweh that promised to make Israel a great nation, and that they would be a light to the nations around them, and he, and he promised to give Abraham's descendants a land of their own and an identity under him, and staying true to his promises. God has miraculously deliver the Israelites from slavery. And, and he's now leading them through the desert to the land that he promised. But, but their time of oppression has left its mark on them. You see, they're in the desert, but they're, they're, they're still discovering how it is that Egypt and the scars left from Egypt have, have, have left their marks on their lives, both physically and mentally, emotionally. They're filled with doubts. They're filled with fear. They've seen Yahweh's faithfulness and his power. And, but, but every new trial that comes their way brings to the surface this question that, that just kind of keeps coming up through their journey, which is, how do I know that I can trust God? Would, would, would I have been better off a slave in Egypt how is this better following Yahweh? Moses is then given the law at Mount Sinai as they continue to travel. And the book of Genesis is written sometime during their wilderness wanderings. This text that we're about to read, the one that we're about to exegete right now, comes to the people of Israel while they are in the desert. Moses is orienting them and giving them an identity. They're, he is helping them to understand both where they've come from and what it is that God is doing. And through this recounting of the history of God, the people of Israel will grow to know their origin. They'll become familiar with the God who's called them out of Egypt. And it is against this historical narrative that, will, that the Israelites will be oriented to really understand who God is and why it is that he, they should trust and worship him and, and follow him. So this brings us to our sort of exegetical context, the, the history of what is coming before this. It, you'll remember for the last few weeks we've been studying Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 
If we're tracking with the Israelites here as they are sort of hearing this information that Moses is recounting to them of the creation story, a theme is beginning to emerge about the power and about the nature of God. What have the Israelites learned about God so far? What, what is it that they've discovered? Well, first of all, they've discovered that he's eternal. They've discovered that he existed before the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wherever the beginning was, God was before that. They've discovered that he is powerful. He made everything that exists by the word of his power. They've discovered that he's creative. All that he has designed works, and it's beautiful. And he looks over it each day and says, oh, this is good. And they also could look around and see the world around them and think, man, God is so creative. He's so good at what he does. They've learned that God is emotive. He takes delight. He finds pleasure in the things that he made. They've discovered that God is personal. He made mankind in such a way that that mankind both has the capacity for relationship with him, but also has the capacity to reflect his glory, his nature to one another. We're meant for connection and And God exemplifies that. They've also discovered that he's loving. He made this special protected place called the Garden of Eden. And there he he placed Adam in that and and then brought Eve to Adam after, after causing a deep sleep to fall on him. He makes provision for their needs. He delights in sharing dominion with them and sharing work with them. His presence and instruction are in the garden. And his instruction is what protects them from what could harm them. He's a protector. Not only is he loving, but he is kind. He could have made the world in in a gray format with no color. He could have made taste like not an issue. We just eat because we eat. But instead, there's all of the sights and sounds and the, and the physical stimulation of, of food and touch and sexual intimacy there in the garden. And it's all meant to elicit joy. It's all meant to, to bring to the forefront the fact that God delights in what he's doing. And that in his kindness, he wants us to delight in what he's doing. He wants to share in his joy with us. And it is against this backdrop, the the backdrop of the goodness of God, that our passage today finds its meaning. All that is about to unfold in these seven verses that we're going to look at, it stands in contrast to all that God has been doing. If you're an Israelite in the desert and you're hearing this story for the first time, you hear two chapters of the goodness of God and how loving and how creative and how powerful he is. You hear all of the good things about who God is and and then in chapter 3, all of a sudden, there's a change in the tone. The extravagant love of God is displayed in these first two chapters. But in these next seven verses, we're going to see it poisoned 
corrupted and fallen. So here's where we're headed. The title of our message today is Fallen, But Not Forever. It has three sort of file folders that you can take notes in. The first one is the subtlety of the serpent. The subtlety of the serpent. The second one is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. And the third one is the search for sanctuary. The search for sanctuary. Let's begin by reading chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Focusing on the subtlety of the serpent, there are two things that we want to take note of. First of all, his origin, and second of all, his nature. His origin and his nature. After seeing the goodness of God so clearly displayed for us, chapter 3 takes this ominous turn. And it's sort of seemingly out of the blue. We're introduced to this sinister figure whose obvious intent is for harm. Now, though we don't get all the details about where this figure came from, there are hints and outright claims throughout the rest of Scripture that help to bring clarity, help us to really understand who he is and what his possible origin is. Now, we learn from the book of Revelation that the serpent from the garden is actually a spiritual figure who opposed God from the beginning. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down, now here it is, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. 
Now this idea of this, this figure in the Garden of Eden being this spiritual enemy of God, Satan, the devil, is also repeated in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2 when it talks about the judgment of Satan. It says in chapter 20, verse 2, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. So the serpent here is not just a mere animal. He's not merely just a serpent. The serpent here in this passage is a character that is mentioned throughout the Bible. He is a spiritual being who is in rebellion against Yahweh and even launched a war against him. During this spiritual war, other spiritual beings are caught up in, by aligning themselves with this dark, spiritual, ominous figure. And they lose their place in heaven as well. They're cast out of heaven, the abode of God. And in the end of Revelation, we discover that God still has ultimate authority and will eventually imprison the devil, the serpent, the dragon. Now, other passages from the Old Testament help fill in some possible details about the origin and nature of the spiritual being. First of all, we need to understand some of the nuances that come along with the, the, the name, the serpent, or the, the word, the serpent here. Uh, the original language that uh, is, is on display here, or is not on display here because we read it in English, is, is Hebrew. And the word for serpent there is nachash, N-A-C-H-A-S-H, nachash. That's the great thing about speaking Hebrew, is that you get to sound like you're hawking a loogie with just about every word, right? Nachash. Chabad. There's all kinds of words. But this, this word, Nahash, which gets translated serpent, is used in different ways throughout the scriptures. Many forms of the same word are used in other portions of scripture to denote things like things that are shiny, like bronze or copper. It's used in other passages to denote uh, someone who's an enchanter or a diviner. And the idea in our text is that this figure in the garden hisses, deceives, bites like a serpent. He comes with evil intent to spread his toxic poison into God's creation. Like an actual snake, the poison he spreads will intoxicate and ultimately kill his victims. Now, there are two passages, both one, one in Isaiah 14 and, and one in Ezekiel 28, that really refer historically to two evil world powers that are to be judged by God. Each of those passages allude to this evil spiritual being that is behind the powers that be. So the, the kings that are being judged in, in, in those passages of Scripture, it, it also seems to indicate that there is this spiritual power or force behind those kings that is also receiving judgment from God. And many theologians see a direct reference to Satan. His fall as a seraph or a, an angel and subsequent deception here in the Garden of Eden. It records him as a, as a shining one. That, that could be what the Nahash 
is referring to, the shining one. Ezekiel tells us that he was a sort of bedazzled angel. That he had all of these sort of gemstones and he sparkled and that he, he shined in some way. That he was the first one to ever don sequins, which obviously is a sin. The Isaiah 14 passage tells us that pride was found in his heart. And though he walked in the garden of God, on the mountain of Eden, among the stones of fire, that there was pride in his heart. And he said, you know what? I will be like the Most High. Matter of fact, specifically he says, I will make myself like the Most High. Now, the Ezekiel passage tells us that he didn't start out evil. Listen to what it says. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. This is Ezekiel 28, verses 13 to 15. You were in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day I created you until unrighteousness was found in you. So God created Satan good. But Satan made a choice. He rebelled against the authority of God. Now Jesus adds further testimony about the character of Satan, of this figure who's given different titles throughout the Bible. Talking to, to a group of people that were conspiring against him, Jesus told them that they were really not just acting as mere humans, but they were actually acting like their leader. Listen to what he says in John chapter 8. Verse 44, he says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now this coincides with what we see here in Genesis chapter 3 as he begins to lie to Adam and Eve and deceive them and walk them into sin. As a part of the commentary of this new figure that's being introduced, our text says that the Nahash, the serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He is here to use his craftiness, his subtlety, to deceive and to destroy God's good creation. Now let's look at his nature. We know that he's a deceiver. We know he's a liar. We know he's a murderer. Jesus said so. Those things are true. But, but notice in verse 1, it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did, you actually, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? 
Notice what he is compared with. He's compared with other things that God has created, the beasts of the field. Through Moses' description of this ominous figure, he is telling us that the serpent is both crafty or deceptive, but also that he is created. From God's perspective, he's just like any other creature that he's made. He's a created being. God is the only one who is uncreated. The devil is not a co-equal with God. He's not, he's not the yin to God's yang. This is not a dualist perspective where good and evil eternally existed. Evil was introduced through the heart of God's enemy. In addition, he's lumped in and compared with the beasts of the field, and, and we find that he is not eternal. He did not always exist. He's not an uncreated equal with God. He is the petulant and spoiled creature shaking his fist at the one who gave him life and existence. This means that Satan is not as powerful as God. In fact, did you know that Satan is under God's authority? That he, he, he cannot do things without obtaining permission from God. Even though he's in rebellion, there are limits to what his rebellion can accomplish. This is really clear from Job chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, where he has to come and seek permission to harm Job. When Jesus comes on the scene, he casts out demons, those who follow Satan in his rebellion, with just his word. He's got the authority. Satan has no authority in those places. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we're told that at, at the final judgment of Satan, that only one angel is sent and dispatched to come and bind him and cast him into the bottomless pit. He's not some crazy superpower. He's not even in the same realm or category of who God is. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 16, we're told that in the final judgment, the world will look at Satan. They will stare narrowly at him. They'll squint their eyes looking at him and go, is, is this the one who troubled the nations? This, he's the one who caused all the problems? The idea being that in comparison to the glory of who God is, Satan is a mere pipsqueak. He's nothing. A mere creature. Now that is not to say that Satan is not capable of harm. He swept a third of the angels into his rebellion. He's bringing his rebellion to humanity here in this passage. And he's called the deceiver of the whole world in Revelation 12, 9. But when Satan is compared to the creator, he is infinitesimally small. He can still do destructive things, and we find in this passage that he is, in fact, 
a destroyer. A part of his nature is not only that he's cre- he is created, but also that he's deceptive. Satan has the ability to appear more beautiful than his actual intent. Both he and those held captive to his power often look good. Here in this passage, he comes as this serpent figure. We're not sure exactly what is going on there. But he entertains conversation with Adam and Eve. And those that are his followers, false teachers and false prophets, are also said to have the same sort of ability. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 13 through 15 regarding the false teachers of his day. He said, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Do you you see what's going on there? The enemy has a way of coming in and looking sort of non-offensive and and not scary and, 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 and not threatening in some way. And he can come in subtly, craftily, and do his work to deceive. Here Satan comes as the Nahash, the serpent. And we're not sure if he was an actual serpent or some other mystical form. The Faith Life Study Bible actually has a really helpful note in this. It says, The attribution of human characteristics, cleverness and speech, to the Nahash, to the serpent, suggests that it is more than an ordinary member of the animal kingdom. It's not just a snake. But Adam and Eve are, are sort of able to converse with him, and they don't seem to be freaked out at his presence. They're, they're, they're not troubled by what's going on. Somehow, th- th- their sense of threat is never alerted in this scenario. And we see that Satan comes in to deceive. Would you notice with me some of his, some of his tactics? The tactics that he's using in seeking to corrupt Adam and Eve? First of all, he divides their togetherness. He divides their togetherness. Notice he doesn't come to Adam, the one who's called to protect his wife, to lead. The one whom God will ultimately hold responsible for what goes down here. He doesn't come to Adam. No, he comes to Eve. He subverts their relationship and he subverts their closeness with one another. He singles her out. Second thing to notice is that he omits the goodness contained in God's commands. He omits the goodness of God's word. In chapter 2, verse 16, in the command to not eat of the tree, it says this, And the Lord God commanded, saying, You may surely eat of every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When Satan comes and begins to deceive, when the serpent enters in, he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He omits the goodness of God. God said, you can eat from any tree, just not that one. Satan comes and says, did God say you can't eat of any of the trees? God is 
He really doesn't want you to enjoy things. He really doesn't want you to experience goodness. He's holding out on you in some way. He omits the goodness of God's word. And he denies the consequences of sin. As the passage continues on, the woman says to him, well, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Not not only does he omit the goodness of God, but he denies the consequences of sin. He says, you will not die. He denies the consequences of sin. And fourthly, he twists God's word. He divides togetherness. He omits the goodness of God's word. He denies the consequences of sin. And he twists God's word. Three times in this passage, Satan is monkeying with God's word. Omitting the good, denying the consequence of sin, and twisting its meaning to say that God is holding out on Adam and Eve. This is the exact same tactic that he uses with Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. And don't you know that we can expect that his tactics have not changed much over the course of time. One of the things that he will do is attack our understanding of God's word. This is why it's so important for us to be students of God's word. He questions the goodness of God. God is holding out on you. He appeals to our desires. Don't you want to be wise? Don't you want to be like God? And he uses created things for destructive purposes. You see, Satan is a deceiver, and ultimately, Satan is a destroyer. He is destructive. True to the words of Jesus, the serpent is intent on murdering Adam and Eve. And he's going to do it with his lies. So not only do we see the, the, the subtlety of the serpent here, but we also see the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Packed into verse 6 is a ton of logical conclusions that we can make about sin. This one moment has so much wrapped up in it that it will take really the whole of Scripture to unpack it and to really understand it. The simple act of eating a piece of fruit, that's not what's really going on. It's so much more deep than that. And the act of eating this piece of fruit is set against the backdrop of all the goodness of God and everything that he's displayed to Adam and Eve up until this point. The offense is so much deeper than eating fruit. It is a betrayal of the deepest kinds. Let's consider the meaning of this act. Notice in verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. First thing that we can take note of is that sin is idolatrous. Sin is idolatrous. It exalts creation over the creator. It says, what's more important is this thing that God has made rather than the one who made it. It exalts the creation over the creator. Not only that, but sin is a relational betrayal. 
Sin is a relational betrayal. It betrays the goodness of God. This moment here in the garden is is not unlike the moment where the Israelites received the law at Mount Sinai. You remember? God has delivered them. He brought them through the Red Seas, miraculously fed them in the desert. Now they're at Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up to receive the commands. And what happens down below? After all the goodness of what God has done, what happens down below is they begin to worship a golden calf. Say, this is your God who delivered you out of Egypt. That same betrayal is what's present here in our text. After all the goodness of God that he has displayed to Adam and Eve, they are now betraying his love and his investment in them. Not only that, but sin is rebellion. Adam and Eve sought to be like God, apart from God. It was a determination in their hearts to be autonomous and independent of God. They they said, we'll do it on our own. We'll get there by ourselves. They knew what he had said. They knew that he had prohibited them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they chose to eat anyway. It was a rebellion. Sin is also destructive. It goes against God's created design. The, The reason sin is bad is because it's bad for us. It's not how we're designed to operate. It's not what God wanted for the world. It it, it pushes against God's created design. And it destroys and unravels the fabric of it. It destroys relationships. It destroys people's lives. It destroys them physically. It destroys them spiritually. Sin is evil because it's bad for us. Not only is sin destructive, but sin is also divisive. It separates mankind from God. Here in this passage, as they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will not delight in God's presence. They will hide from it. It separates mankind from one another. Instead of being close and together and Adam looking at his wife and saying, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, in just a few short verses, Adam will blame everything on Eve. And it separates from them their own sense of being loved by God. Remember in chapter 2, Verse 25, how the chapter ends, it says the man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. But in verse 7, it says that the eyes of them both were opened. In chapter 3, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They felt shame. Their own perspective of their being had changed. They felt shame about who they were. Sin is divisive. Sin is eternal. The consequences of this one act are still playing out to this day. That's why sin cannot be fully judged until the very end of time. Because of sin's consequences gets carried out from generation to generation to generation to generation all the way until the end of the age. Sin is not merely a temporal matter. It is an eternal matter. sin brings shame. 
Sin is divisive. Sin is eternal. Sin brings shame. Instead of being free and open, Adam and Eve are hiding and afraid. Think about this reality. When they were naked and unashamed, and when their eyes were opened, what had changed about their appearance? Nothing. The only thing that had changed was their perception, their perspective about who they were. They felt shame because of the rebellion against God. They knew that they were wrong. They knew that they were not in a place of surrender and submission. And so they felt the weight of their shame. And lastly, sin is fatal. Sin ultimately brings death. The promise of God is true. They will be separated from the tree of life and they will die in their sin. This is the day where judgment will come to Adam and Eve. This one act is what plunges the world into chaos. It's the reason that everything awful has happened in the world. All sin has its roots in the elements that we just discussed. It's, It's the reason that sin is such an offense to God. And throughout the scriptures, we see various lists of sins. These offenses against God. These things that bring the judgment of God. And I I, I compiled a scripture list for you to refer to later. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. By the way, if you are not a fast writer, uh, you you don't write very fast, just pull out your phone, take a picture, and you you can have that list of scriptures to look back on. But I just want to read through, just real briefly, real quickly, what this looks like. Mark 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, Here's Romans 1, verses 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent and haughty and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. But not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. How about Romans 13, 13? Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Revelation chapter 21. Each of these passages give this list of sins. All of this has its root in the garden. And just in case you say, well, I I didn't read in this list of scriptures my personal sin, so I'm feeling okay about it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, all wrongdoing is sin. You know you should do something? 
You don't do it? That's sin. This list of offenses is not meant to to just leave us in condemnation. Rather, it is meant to be like a mirror that shows us how desperately we need a Savior. It's meant to show us how far away from the garden we really are. It defines how, how lost we are and how desperately we are in need of grace and forgiveness. The rest of the Bible unfolds, and as it does, it is a journey. It, it is a journey of God bringing us back into his presence, which leads us to the last point, the search for sanctuary. The search for sanctuary. Adam and Eve are left in our passage here. Their eyes have been opened. They sow figs, fig leaves. They cover up their nakedness, and they are ashamed. The weight of their sin hangs heavy around their necks. And we see the sin problem on clear display here. In the search for sanctuary, the question is, how do we get back? How do we get back into fellowship with God? How do we, how do we turn this thing around? We see as the story unfolds in Scripture, this pattern of the garden being repeated throughout the Bible. You know, the ancients in the Middle East believed that mountaintops were the abode of the gods and that the gods lived in these giant garden palace places and that they sort of lived in these, these places and, and treated humans like their minions. Now, the Israelites would understand this because they just came out of slavery in Egypt. And so they, they understood that the belief of the Egyptians about the gods, that they lived in these high mountains where rivers flowed down from them and, and, and they, they treated humans as their sort of playthings, that the Egyptians believed that and that translated into practice. That's exactly what they did to the Israelites. Treated them as their minions, as their playthings. But as the Israelites are learning here in the desert, as they hear the story that is unfolding from Moses as he writes in the book of Genesis, what they see here is that Yahweh is not like that. That the garden place that he created was a place of fellowship. It was a place that he wanted them to be in. <laughs> that he longed for fellowship in that place. He delighted in us being there, and through his partnership with man, he wanted the garden to expand and fill up the whole earth. It was a divine partnership and an invitation to enjoy him forever. The garden was a sanctuary. It was a place where, the, where God dwelt. And it was a place where the dwelling place of God overlapped with the creation that he'd made in the world. Here in the garden, the presence of God and creation overlapped with one another, and God was in that place. One with his people. His presence among his people in his prepared place. But as they see God's design get spoiled the subtlety of the serpent and the seriousness of sin, God has to act. He expels Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, which we'll learn about in the coming weeks. And now a whole different type of life is experienced. It's filled with toil, 
relational brokenness, spiritual warfare, pain, and it ends in death. As Moses continues to give instructions to the wandering Israelites about how to come to God, he tells them that God has prepared a place to meet with them. Something called a tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And on the walls of the tabernacle are sown cherubim and fruit trees and all these things that is garden-like imagery from Genesis chapter 1. The candlestick, called the menorah, is itself a, a fruit tree of sorts. The tabernacle also has this big veil or this, this curtain that separates out the holy place from the holy of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And sewn into the curtains that separate that place are these cherubim that guard access to the holiest of holies. Just like when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, the cherubim are sent to keep them from having access to it again. Cherubim also guard the mercy seat, the place of God's presence. And as the Israelites heard the story of creation and the fall of man, they came to understand what was happening. God, in calling them out of Egypt, was also calling them back to his place to be his people for his glory. God sends a replica of the garden among the people. He is calling them back. Okay, so I want you to see this. All of this is meant to evoke the image that the worship, as the worshiper came to worship, they were actually heading west. The, the tabernacle faced east, you remember? The temple faced east. And so to go in towards the Holy of Holies, you were journeying towards the garden, towards the presence of God, towards union with God once again. The problem was that nobody could actually get that close. <laughs> The only way you could even get sort of close was to get to the outer courts and, and there kill an animal in your place to cover your sins. The high priest, one day out of the year, could enter beyond the veil, that curtain with the cherubim sewn into it. He could go in to the presence of God, but he better not have any sin when he gets in there. Because if he does, the cherubim stand there as a warning. They'll strike him dead an incredible thing. So week after week and month after month and year after year and decade after decade and millennia after millennia, the children of Israel are worshiping and the longing of their heart is once again to get close to God. How do we get back? How do we get there? The temple is another version of the tabernacle, the fruit, the cherubim, the menorah, the holy of holies. It's all there. The worshiper could approach, but never get all the way into God's presence. The barrier between the worship and the sanctuary of God was their sin. That was obvious. Until their sin was dealt with, they couldn't get in. It was an ever-present reminder of the separation that mankind had suffered. But there's a sin answer. There's a sin answer. God 
wants to bring us back. That's the message of the Bible. He wants to bring us back. Again and again, he is calling us back. Unbeknownst to most of Israel, a carpenter from Galilee, a preacher, would do what animals could never actually do. In another garden, in the garden called Gethsemane, he would offer his own life in obedience to his father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. He'd be arrested, he'd be whipped, and he'd be crucified. This great high priest would offer an intercessory prayer for his people, saying, from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And with his dying breath, he would say, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at that moment, when he died, God did something radical. You know what it was? He took the veil in the temple and he ripped it apart. He tore it apart. The cherubim were laid on the floor of the temple. The separation was gone. When Jesus died, God instantaneously responds that it is enough. It is sufficient. Open house. Come on home. He made a way back. The Lamb of God was sacrificed for the sins of his people. As we read the end of the book in Revelation, we come once again to a garden scene. Only the garden is not just a garden for two people, it's a city. It's filled with every tribe and tongue and nation. The tree of life stands in the midst and water of life flows from it. And God himself is with his people in his prepared place. That's the message of the gospel. People from every tribe, every language, every nation being brought back to the garden. So we're going to do something here. I'm going to invite Mitch and his team to come back and lead us in worship. This time I'd like Mitch and Julie and Pat and Nancy to make their way to the sides of the sanctuaries to be available for prayer. Now, the book of James tells us this. If we do nothing with this, we're like somebody who looks in a mirror, sees their reflection and does nothing with it. They're not improved by it at all. When we look at sin, if we don't do anything with it, it bears no profit in our lives. So I want us to take a moment to reflect. Those of you who are in the hub, uh, Dan and Sarah Ashworth will be available to pray for those who would like prayer. But but here's what we're going to do. Coming to Jesus is an amazing gift from God. And it's come at great cost to God. As worship begins here in just a moment, there's going to be two songs played. And during that time, there's an opportunity for us to reflect. Reflect on our sin. We're not asked to do this a whole lot, I think, in a church setting. But I want you to take a moment. And just with David, with the same heart of David, just say, God... Search me. See what's in my heart. Reveal by your Holy Spirit what areas of my life I'm I'm pushing against you. I'm in rebellion against you. God, bring that to the forefront of my mind. Send your Holy Spirit to awaken my senses to just how far I'm pushing you away. How I'm resisting you. And then I want you to respond in one of 
by doing three things. I want you to confess, agree with God that it's sin. Stop making excuses, name it. God, I'm lying. That's, I'm a liar. That's a sin against you. God, I'm, I'm you know, cheating or I'm, I'm whatever. I'm rebelling in this way. God, I see it how you see it. I agree with you. Now confess that to him. Name the sin in your prayer. And second of all, receive. Give God thanks that he sent his son as the perfect lamb of God to take away your sin. Receive his forgiveness. Give him thanks. God, thank you that you've forgiven me. Thank you that I'm clean. And lastly, repent. To repent is to turn away. Begin to process with God. Let him know your need. Tell him your desire to change. Acknowledge that you need his help through the Holy Spirit to change. So confess, receive, repent. So we worship. Take your hearts to the Lord. And if you're here this morning, you got something you're wrestling with, you got something you're dealing with, you need prayer. These folks here and in the hub, Danny and Sarah, they're here to pray for you and be an encouragement to you. And I, I would encourage you, come up during worship. They're ready to pray with you. For those who would choose to sit in the in, in your seat and process with the Lord, would you enter into a time right now of reflective prayer and worship and surrender your heart once again? Great is his forgiveness because great is our sin. Great is his grace because great is our death. Amen. Father, use this time for your glory. Meet your people as they worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen.